It is good to be here. Am I on? It's good to be here again. I I must say that it has uh, been a delight in these past years to come to this uh, chapel. I'll, I'll tell you why. I, I'm in a lot of different schools around the country. I, uh, I was in one, another one this week, and next week I'll be in three days in three states in uh, three different chapels. And uh, I have tried graciously to tell some of the other schools that they ought to take a look at how this chapel runs. Because a lot of the schools have really itty-bitty chapels, and everybody kind of comes in and has this kind of like, oh man, we got to go through this, you know, and it's a 30-minute thing with a 12-minute, what usually in the past we call them ditties, which is what the pastor has to do at Christmas after a big uh, musical production, and they want the gospel in, you know, six minutes or less complete, you know, with conviction. And so you go to other schools and they have chapels that don't worship and don't have this atmosphere. And we were talking about that before uh, uh, this uh, hour. And I just uh, have to say amen uh, to the fact that uh, this is a great blessing to be in a school like this with this kind of a chapel with an emphasis on really worshiping the Lord. And uh, as you really worship You'll never be satisfied with the tinny things that sometimes happen for worship. And many of us, having been touched by God in worship, are, um, are always carrying that with us. I want to worship the Lord as I go. Let, let me just say one thing about the seminary. Um, I've said this each year. If you're going to the Master's Seminary, we're so glad. Really, we are. We are. Uh, brothers and sisters in the Lord, I realize that not everyone will stay in Southern California and go to seminary. And uh, you're welcome to catch me sometime today if you want to know about Northwest. Uh, we have flown a number of the students up at our expense, and we will do that again in April. Uh, those that are thinking about seminary that are juniors and seniors. Uh, we do have men and women at our seminary. We have women, most of them going into missionary work and uh, are preparing uh, themselves. We are thankful for that opportunity that God has given us and the impact that that has made around the world. And now while I'm doing commercials, let me say one more thing. Um, for those of you who are thinking about serving the Lord, especially those of you who are thinking about working with youth, you ought to go to seminary someplace. It is a burden on my heart that we have an awful lot of men going in a youth ministry who are not making it past their second birthday in the church that they go to. Good people. But they need, you know what, the ministry demands our best. And we ought to prepare ourselves just as well as possible to do that. So uh, I, I hope that you will think about that. I, I, I've been picking up an awful lot of casualties lately who said, you know, I went out and it didn't work for me. And I think part of the difficulty that we have is that we have those who really have a desire to serve the Lord, but they don't have all the tools and the preparation work that God has made in their life, and you ought to think about it. Well, okay, so much for the commercial. Uh, I'd like to take you to a passage this morning that we usually don't go to. I'm always interested in the startling words that Jesus said 
to us and how they don't always fit with the way we're thinking. When I was, um, when I first started in the pastorate, I started a church while I was in seminary at Northwest and, and uh, I was 23. I was too young to know that I was too young. And uh, we started a church when we were 24. Uh, the Lord allowed us to buy a building. It's kind of an interesting thing. Not to have a building, not to have a place. And so uh, we bought a building and we had been there, I don't know, four months. And uh, the, the church that had owned it previously cut off our water on Saturday. Now, this is kind of a strange thing. First of all, I didn't even know that, that our water passed through their parsonage. They didn't sell us the parsonage, just the church. And second of all, they hadn't bothered to talk to us about it or anything, and they cut off our water. And it was... Now, I know it's hard for you to believe that it doesn't rain all the time, but on this particular day, it was pouring down rain in, in the uh, Seattle area. And uh, so we're out there, you know, up, up to our knees in mud, digging out a, 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 the line, trying to put in a new meter, you know, so that we'd have water on Sunday in our church. And frankly, I was ticked. At the other at the other church. Now I just don't know how to say it. They were brothers in the Lord. Uh, they <clears throat> were a different denomination, and uh, but I was rather angry. And we got the line in, and we we got the uh, we had church on Sunday. It was okay, and I stewed on this for several days. You know, just kind of thought to myself, what kind of a jerk would cut off our water on Saturday. And then, of course, I sat down to pray. Have you ever done this? And you can't pray, you can't read the Word, you don't seem to be getting anything, and I'm reading and preparing sermons, and it's not going well. And I came across some verses where the Lord says, I'd like you to pray for your enemies. Frankly, I was looking for an imprecatory psalm on this day. You know, one of those smoke em type psalms. Lord, I really, you know. And uh, it was a spiritual growth and turning point in my life when the Lord says, I would like you to pray for your enemies and I would like you to bless those who persecute you. And frankly, I didn't want to bless anybody who persecuted me. And I certainly wasn't happy with this church, but I wasn't getting any farther. And then... The Lord really just broke my heart about my attitude toward my brother, and I had to get down on my knees and ask the Lord's forgiveness. That was the easy part. And I got back to my studying, and the Lord just would not let me have any peace, and I knew I had to go ask my brother for forgiveness. So I went over to where he was, and he wasn't in. I was so glad. But I was relieved, so I went back to what I was doing, and the next day I called and he was there and I went over to talk to him and he was tied up on the phone. And I said, I'll come back later. And he said, no, come on in, come on in. I sat down, he got off the phone and he said, how are you doing, Mark? And I said, pretty good. And we chit-chatted and I finally said, you know, I've got to ask your forgiveness because I have had some things in my heart that aren't right about the water getting cut off. And he said, the water got cut off? And I said, yeah, your church cut off our water. He said, I didn't know anything about the water getting cut off. You know, it was just an overzealous, 
treasurer or something in the church that didn't want to spend an extra 50 cents and, and hadn't told the pastor anything. And we had great prayer together and thanked the Lord together and we were closer afterwards and I realized that the Lord really did put those words in there about praying for your enemies because most of the time God wants to change our hearts. I have prayed for my enemies and I haven't seen their hearts changed, but I have prayed and on every occasion that I have prayed for them and blessed them, God has changed me. Someone remarked to me recently, uh, why did I think that, you remember Zacharias when he was struck dumb because he wouldn't trust the angel? Why that was true there and why Sarah in the Old Testament, who didn't trust and laughed, why she wasn't struck dumb. Two things. One is Abraham laughed first, which most of us don't notice in the text in the Old Testament. And second of all, do you know what, friends? God doesn't always do it the same in our lives. Have you noticed this? See, sometimes God's done something in me and then I just think everybody else is going to have the same deal. But God works differently at different times. I'd like you to take your Bibles and turn to Mark 9 because in light of what I've just said about the Lord praying, telling us that we ought to pray for our enemies, there are some words in the ninth chapter of Mark that are really strange. Whenever I come upon strange words, I always kind of want to sit and think and say, why did the Lord say this? What did the Lord mean by this? Now in Mark chapter 9, we are at the Mount of Transfiguration. The Lord in a moment, allowed Peter, James, and John to see his glory. It's really something. And after they, they saw his glory, uh, they didn't know what to say. And so Peter, like many of us, spoke up and said, well, why don't we put up three shelters? <laughs> I think sometimes it's a lot easier for us to be involved in um, putting up shelters than it is in worshiping the Lord. And a voice came out of heaven saying, This is my beloved son. Listen to him. I think that's crucial as we're going to go into the next verses. Listen to him. You know, sometimes we listen to a lot of other people, but we don't listen to the Lord. And uh, we can listen to everybody else and not hear him. I don't know about your schedules. My schedule is busy, busier. I'm just trucking. I'm just, I'm, I'm just going so fast. And it's easy to get caught up with all the things that we're doing and not to have any time just to listen to the Lord because we love Him. I mean, what's your weekend like? you got a lot of things planned, right? Sadie Hawkins is Saturday, isn't that right? Yeah. Just a few other things thrown in. I, I was reading the list of all the things that are happening this week and the next week and the basketball season's about to start. All this stuff happens. you got all your classes. Some of you have to work. Some of you... You've got a room... Let's not get into the roommate thing. you just got all this stuff and you... Maybe you're just a little bit like me that we're just so busy with all the things we're doing and the Lord comes along. Why do you think the Lord showed His glory? It wasn't like the Lord Jesus needed to have His glory shown. 
This was for the disciples' benefit, and the point of it, the Lord God speaks from heaven and said, This is my son, listen to him. Okay, now we got that in our mind? That's the context. I want you to pick up with me then at verse 14. So coming down off the mountain. When they came to the other disciples, that's the nine guys that are left behind, okay? When they came to the other disciples, they saw a large crowd around them and the teachers of the law arguing with them. As soon as all the people saw Jesus, they were overwhelmed with wonder and ran to meet him. So here's a crowd, and they're arguing. There's the disciples, they're the teachers of the law. You've seen this before as you read through the Gospels, and they're arguing. There's fussing. There's all kinds of people going on, okay? And uh, Jesus says, what are you arguing with them about? And a man in the crowd answered, Teacher, I brought you my son who is possessed by a spirit and has robbed him of speech. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him into the ground. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth, and becomes rigid. I asked your disciples to drive out the spirit, but they could not. Now, look at this next verse. Here it is. Oh, unbelieving generation! Jesus said, How long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. Does this sound kind of unusual from Jesus? You know, humanly speaking, you almost you you, you wouldn't you wouldn't want to say this out loud. It's almost like Jesus was up on the mount with the glory with the disciples, and he came down, and there's all kinds of pettiness and stuff going on down below, and he just says, "How long am I going to put up with you?" This is what your parents said. Remember when you were home over the summer, and they just said, "Ah." Well, we know that Jesus wasn't just ticked off at the, the whole situation. We understand that he wasn't just, you know, it just wasn't a bad hair day for him or something, or a problem that he had. It wasn't just like he was just upset with stuff. Well, then what in the world did he mean here in this passage? So I thought as I was reading it, I just didn't understand it. I'll read it again. So I read it. Oh, unbelieving generation, Jesus replied, how long? Shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. And then the boy comes, and the father tells that his son has been thrown into the fire and thrown, you know, in the water and try to kill himself. And, and Jesus asked the boy's father, How long has he been like this? From childhood, he answered. He is a. Uh, it is often thrown him into the fire or water to kill him, but if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. If you can, said Jesus, everything is possible for him who believes. And immediately the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. And as you know, the Lord casts out the demon. So what in the world does this mean? It's interesting, you know, I mean, I read it and I read it and I thought about it and I meditated on it and I thought, and this isn't really what I'm going to speak at Winning Chapel. And the Lord kept impressing it on my heart and I said, okay. But then I said, Lord, I don't know what it means. <laughs> and I read other commentaries because, you know, that's a good idea. And none of them seem to know either. It's really easy to tell people what it doesn't mean. I mean, we know it wasn't that Jesus was angry just because he was having a bad day and this and that. But what does it mean then? 
Well, there are two words, and one of them is a key word. What do you think, class? If you read this verse, what are the two key words? Unbelieving generation. Those are the key words. You see them there? Unbelieving generation. Now, I got thinking about that. The, the, the thrust seems to be that there was real unbelief here. They weren't trusting God here. And uh, they didn't believe. And, and then I thought, well, who wasn't believing? Was it the disciples? Was it the teachers of the law? Was it the Father? The Lord says, oh, unbelieving generation. The whole group. Just, just check. Just stay with me for a second. I think you'll see where we're going. You see the whole picture. Jesus comes down. The nine are there. The teachers of the law are there. And this man has brought his son, really a case, to the disciples. And evidently, they tried to cast the demon out. I assume they said in the name of Jesus, or they said something, you know, cast the demon out, and the demon didn't come out. And the teachers of the law are there, and I think they're saying, you can't do it. There's an argument going on. Why is there an argument? Because the disciples aren't able and the teachers of the law are saying, nanny, 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 you know, you're not capable of handling this. This is just shows how weak you are. And I suspect that the disciples said, well, can you do any better? And you can see the Mideastern scene here where people are fussing and they're, and they're talking to each other and, the, and the, it's getting louder and, and a crowd's growing. Everybody's saying, look at this. And Jesus comes. It's interesting the text says that when the Lord comes, that they were overwhelmed with wonder when they saw Jesus. See, I think he stands in stark contrast to all of the dirt that's being thrown into the air as the disciples and the, and, and the teachers of the law go back and forth and, the, and here's the boy and here's the father and here's the point who cared about the boy do you know why I think Jesus was angry here because I don't think anybody cared about the boy Eventually, his father comes forward and cares. But the disciples were so upset that they didn't look good. And the teachers of the law are so upset about whether or not this can be done. And nobody cares about this boy. And he's there on the ground. And Jesus says, oh, unbelieving generation, how long am I going to put up with you? Do you know why? Because nobody cared. Friends, I am so concerned. Because I think that it is possible in the ministry today and in our churches today that we can get so tangled up with all kinds of dust in the air and nobody seems to care about the boy. Now, I'm, I'm all over the place. I speak in churches and in schools and conferences. and uh, I don't get very many questions asked to me about how much we care about the lost. 
usually there's something swirling about that people would like to talk about. I talk to pastors and they've just got their fill of being beat by the elders. They're just fed up with them. And I have the people who are so tired of being being beat by their pastors. And then there's the people that say the music is too loose and some say it's too conservative. And then we're, we're concerned about what you're doing as opposed to what I'm doing. And I'm afraid that we have an unbelieving generation of people who are caught up with themselves. And very few people are saying, what about this boy who's dying? Now, we can couch it really well. Sometimes we couch it in the word convictions, which sometimes means what I think the Lord wants me to do, but it's not in the Bible. You know what? If it's not in the Bible, keep it to yourself. Huh? If it's not in the Bible, for heaven's sakes, keep it to yourself. It doesn't, I don't mind that people have different views on things, but if it's not in the Bible, isn't this what we're supposed to live by? I guess what I'm trying to say is this. Some of us need to get beyond ourselves and care about something more than just our petty little egos. Look down with me. The disciples came afterwards. Verse 29, Jesus had gone indoors. His disciples asked him privately. He didn't ask out loud. Anyone ask in front of anybody else. Why couldn't we drive it out? Why couldn't we do this? And he replied, this kind can only come out by prayer. In the Matthew passage, the parallel passage, the Lord says, because of your unbelief, if you had faith the size of a mustard seed, you could move this mountain, it would be moved. Gang, when was the last time you spent some time with God in prayer? You know what? When I get in prayer, it is obvious to me that I cannot handle it by myself. I need the Lord. And I'm afraid that in my life, that when I am not praying, I am saying to those that I meet and to the Lord, I can handle this all by myself. Thank you. I know this doesn't sound very shiny and maybe leaders aren't supposed to tell. But in the last week, I have been flat on my face crying out to God saying, God, I can't do it. I think sometimes we can look all put together and people say, well, there's a guy. He's flitting around the country doing this, that and the other thing. When in fact, our lives are so needy before God and we are so desperate and we need to cry out to God and say, God, help me. We don't always tell. 
And when I think I can handle it all by myself, I don't pray. I give the sense that I'm in control of my life. And the unbelief shows and nothing happens. It's empty. Have you ever taught the Sunday school class and it just didn't go anywhere? Huh? Did they say, can you handle these kids for a couple weeks? And the next six months later, you realize that uh, you were in charge of every, you know, the children's program. And you said, how did I get here? And what are we doing? And you're kind of just going through the motions and you're saying, well, okay, oh, you know, where's that little workbook? What am I supposed to say? And we can look so put together when we are so hopelessly over our heads. And the Lord says, the reason you couldn't cast him out is because you haven't been praying. It is the spirit of our generation. Once in a while I read about, you know, baby boomers, baby busters, generation X. Can I just tell you something? In every generation we've had people who would trust God and those that wouldn't. Those that said, I need to pray, and those that wouldn't want to pray. I'm frightened in these days because I meet people that say that they know everything there is to know about the ministry. And I'm here to tell you, I don't know if this is good to tell you or not, but I must just, well, I, must, I just don't know everything about it. I really don't. And frankly, if we don't come to the end of ourselves, we're not going to get very far in the ministry these days. I have some friends, and they are not doing well in the ministry. And part of the reason is, is because they can handle it all by themselves, and they are not crying out to God. And the Lord tells this man, everything is possible for him who believes. But they weren't believing. Uh, let me let me take a, let me stop up here for a second and say something. I I may be misunderstood, so I want to speak carefully. Some of us have been over our heads a long time, and we really aren't capable of handling the things that we're facing. When I came to Northwest Baptist Seminary now uh, three over three years ago. Our seminary, it was in difficult places. And I was commuting an hour and 15 minutes every night uh, home for a year. I did this for a year. And one night in, the, in uh, late November, I was uh, in a traffic jam. Uh, there had been a terrible accident, and we weren't moving. And it was raining, it was miserable. And I had been praying and asking God to work. And frankly, things weren't going well at the seminary. And I didn't know what to say. I had friends that said to me when I went to the seminary, you know what? You have such a wonderful church. You have such a wonderful ministry. Why would you want to do such a stupid thing? You, you know, your friends do tell you what they think. And I'm in the middle of this rain and storm and I'm commuting and I'm tired. And I've been putting in days that were really, really long and I... I began to pray, I began asking God to work in my life, and I just said, Lord, I'm not capable of doing this. And while I was sitting there in the traffic, I just really sensed the Holy Spirit impressing on my mind and my heart that I should start praying about things that were impossible. Are you praying about anything impossible? 
One of the impossible things that I started praying about in that rainstorm on that dark night was that at the school, while we had a lot of pressing problems immediately, we had long-term problems because we had debt that, uh, a long-term debt, okay, about $600,000. Now, we can toss these numbers around, but frankly, you know, I'm not a $600,000 kind of guy, and I didn't see what the Lord was going to do, and I just sensed God wanted me to start praying that God would remove this debt. So I began praying every day. I had one friend that came up and said, I'd like to start praying with you every day that God would remove this debt. So I told him what had happened in the rainstorm, and he said he would pray every day, and I began praying. Nobody wants to give you $600,000 to pay off old debt from old years. Okay, that's just how life is, I guess. Every day I began, every day I said, God, is there something you want to do? Lord, I'm just resting on you. I don't know what else to say. This summer I taught a class in prayer. And the class and I began praying about impossible things. And so one of the days, as a teacher, I said, you know, I've got an impossible thing. I've been praying about it. God has not answered it in any way that I can see. And that is that I have this long-term debt. Would you join me and pray every day that God would remove this debt? About six weeks ago, I received a phone call. And uh, the person on the other end of the line uh, had, uh, I did not know, okay? It's a person from another part of the country. And, they, and here's the story. They said, you know, there is a camp in the Seattle area that's selling. It's being, they, they're not going to run the camp anymore. And they're selling the camp. And uh, this lady... Uh, from California, uh, said, I'm going to buy that camp. They wanted $965,000 for the camp, and she just happened to have, oh, a million and a half in her bank account, didn't know what else to do with it, so she decided to buy a camp. It's, you know, kind of an unusual thing. I don't know too many people like this, nor did I know this lady. And she had never seen our seminary. She had never been on our seminary. I had never talked to her myself. And she said, I was in my room praying about buying a camp in Washington. And the Holy Spirit impressed on my heart that I should not only make the offer for the camp, but I've heard about your seminary through a relative. And I have asked the camp to take the proceeds from the camp and to pay your long-term debt. Do you have a need? But it come right off my chair. This is Friday. Two weeks ago, yesterday, I received a check for $578,000 for our school to pay all its long-term debt. Now, I'll tell you why I'm telling. Because the Lord needs to get the credit. It wasn't the greatness of the prayers. It wasn't because we were great. Friends, eight weeks ago, I was absolutely powerless to take care of the problem that faced me. I was just on my knees like you. I was just crying out to God like you were. I was saying, Lord, I don't know what to do. I have nowhere to turn. I am coming back to you. You are the Lord. I do believe it. 
And because of God, He stepped down into our lives and did something that only He could do. I didn't manipulate it. I didn't make fancy phone calls. I didn't find people who had deep, deep pockets and said, okay, come on, what can we do to make this great challenge thing? I found God at work because He wants to help weak people like you and me. You know what? I think if we would only ask Him, if we would only come to Him and say, Lord, I love you and I just want to know you better and I have these heart needs. I think you would do some great things, but unfortunately we are part of an unbelieving generation that does not think that God is able or that we can handle it all by ourselves. And we, like the disciples, finally come to earth and say, Lord, how come we couldn't do this? Now, in the quiet moments that followed, Jesus explained to the disciples that the Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men and they will kill him and after three days he will rise again. You'll see it in verse 31 right after this. And I think sometimes in my life that the Lord has said, Mark, I want to take you over here to the cross. I want you to understand the great love that I have for you and what I have done for you. And in that moment... I have said, oh, Lord, I so desperately need you. Not. It's not what happens in this text. He tells them about the crucifixion, and we read, when they got to Capernaum, he's in the house, he said, what were you arguing about on the road? It is the same spirit of this generation. He told them on the road about Calvary, and when he turned his back, they argued on the road, and the text says they argued about who, which of them was going to be the greatest. I assume that the guys that got to go up under the mountain probably had just a little smug look on their face, you know, Peter, James, and John, and the rest of the guys are kind of feeling left out, and pretty soon they're saying, well, who's going to be the greatest? Well, I think I am. Do you see it? It's the same spirit. It's the same spirit of these guys who did not pray for the boy. They just let him lay there on the ground while they were arguing with everybody around them. The Lord says, you need to pray. You need to have faith. You need to trust me. And so they went out. They heard about the crucifixion. They didn't understand it. And they got arguing within themselves saying, well, I think I'm greater. I... Uh... I want to tell you that when we're full of ourselves, we have a hard time working with other people. I have met pastors. I have met people. And I've met those that didn't like each other very much. And I just want to tell you that if we are full of ourselves, if we are like this unbelieving generation, it's really hard for us to work with others. The Lord sat them down. He says, if anyone wants to be first, he must be the very last and the servant of all. For, for those of you girls that are taking guys out on the Sadie Hawkins thing, uh, 
If you've made a good choice, then you won't have chosen someone who goes out with you and talks about themselves all evening. Right? You're really hoping that that isn't going to be the case. Some of you are a little worried. Some of you have a right to be worried. On the other side, it's the same with the guys. You know, sometimes you'll go out with a girl and she's more concerned about her hair than she is about the conversation. This has happened. Well, actually, it's happened to the girls too. I'm not going to get into that. When we are full of ourselves, we are so inwardly focused. I can remember a gal who was a wonderful musician and she loved to sing. And she says, oh, you know, I just find that when I'm around other people, they just always talk about themselves and they always just seem to be caught up with themselves. And it just makes me so sick that I'm around those kinds of people who are always thinking about and talking about themselves. And for the next 30 minutes, we heard about her feelings. Uh, she didn't even know. Some of us aren't as good as we should be at putting ourselves last, of being servants of all, of saying that those snotty-nosed little Awana kids that are bratty and mean and you can't understand why they haven't learned a verse in three months, why God wants you to serve them, why He wants you to get down, spend some time with them and give them a hug, love them. And frankly, you're put in a lot of places and I'm put in a lot of places where we could pass just right by those hurting little kids. And I think sometimes the Lord Jesus comes and looks at us and says, what about the boy? What about the ones that no one can help? Doesn't anybody care? And in the spirit of the generation, oh, verse 28, or 38, it just goes on. The Lord gives them, and the Lord gives them the example, sets a child in front of them, explains it to them. Look at verse 38. Teacher said, John, we, this is John who just saw the glory, you know, that John. We, <clears throat> we saw a man driving out demons in your name and we told him to stop. Because he was not one of us. Do not stop him, Jesus said. No one who does a miracles in my name can in the next moment say anything bad about me, for whoever is not against us is for us. I tell you the truth, anyone who gives you a cup of water in my name because you belong to Christ will certainly not lose his reward. I... Uh Let me make the quick application. Have you ever had those people who don't think the way you think? They don't do it the way you do it? They're doing it in a different way, in a different style, in a different method. They go to a different denomination. And when I say, well, they're not very spiritual. And Jesus comes to these disciples and says, listen, if they're not against us, this is what the Lord said. I didn't make this up. The Lord says, listen, if they're not against us, leave them alone. Because if they're doing that for me, they're not going to lose their reward no matter what you say about them.
who are you serving? Did, did you hear Steve Miracle's song this morning? Who are we serving? Who are we interested in? What is this ministry thing all about in our lives? Is it about Jesus? Is it about the Father saying, this is my son, listen to him? Or is it about us caring all about our itty-bitty little feelings and our itty-bitty little egos? And we're so caught up with ourselves that we just want to smack somebody who doesn't agree with us and we miss entirely the boy. He's dying. And frankly, no one cared. Now, I'm in a Baptist seminary, and I hear people saying, well, if they're not a Baptist, then we just can't have anything to do with them. And I think, I've heard them, and I haven't believed them. That's the spirit of the world. It's us versus them. It's our school versus that school. It's, it's our way of thinking versus your way of thinking. And it grieved the Lord Jesus in this passage that they were caught up with everything else except his love for the boy. And friends, I sense the spirit of my life is sometimes corroded on the inside. And I sense that sometimes I cannot deny that the unbelieving generation is a part of me. Is it a part of you? Are you like the disciples, arguing with the best of them, critics of everyone? Say, shouldn't we know the truth? Sure, we should. No question there. But you know what? Sometimes... For all that we say and do, we are not trusting Jesus in our lives. And we are missing the people around us who are dying and going to hell. We miss them. Now here's what I'd like to suggest. I'd like to suggest that some of us here say to the Lord, I want to trust you. I don't want to be the unbelieving generation. I want to trust you. I want to be one of those people who will pray to see that God would change lives. Have you got somebody that needs Jesus? Do you know someone like that? you have a relative like that? I mean, a hard old relative that never ever will change. Have you thought that maybe the Lord wants you to pray every day for them? Have you thought perhaps that God wants to work in your life and put you in the full-time ministry, but you've been saying, well, I don't think so because I have all my other plans. Have you sensed sometimes in your life that you should say, God wants me to trust Him, to do something different than my family and my friends and everybody else would think. I want to trust God in my life. Would you pray about it? I mean, here's a challenge. How about if you pray from now until Thanksgiving? It's not very long. That every day... You would say, Lord, I want to trust you. Whatever it is you want me to do, I'll do it. Say, so, well, that's not long enough, but it would be a great start. 
I want to tell you, I am convinced more than ever that those who pray and ask God to work in their lives so that they can trust Him, that God does something with them. You don't have to be the fanciest. You don't have to be the most, the smartest. God doesn't always choose the wise of this world. He chooses people like you and me who will say, I just want to trust the Lord. In some very practical ways in my life, I want to trust Him. So for this period of time, I will ask God to work in my life. Let's pray together. Lord, uh, forgive us, but sometimes we check out in prayer instead of listening. Sometimes we don't pray at all. Sometimes the guy up in front prays and everybody else is thinking about the class next. Some of us in here right now are part of the unbelieving generation and we know our own hearts and the Holy Spirit in working with us has pointed out some things that we need to think about. We're argumentative. We're full of ourselves. We, we're only thinking about ourselves. Lord, some of us minister. I mean, we serve on Sunday and in the week. And we are like these disciples. Lord, I speak for myself. Honestly and before this group, God, please forgive me if I've missed the weak people around me, the little children, the helpless, because I was so full of myself. Some of us in here praying at this moment, just lifting up our hearts to you, are saying, Lord, we want to trust you. We're like the Father who says, I believe, but help my unbelief. Some of us want to trust you in these days. And from now until Thanksgiving, in our hearts, nobody else knows whether we're thinking it or not, but you know, we are saying every day, we want to come and ask for your direction in our lives and that we will trust you and that we will spend time with you. Lord, I know you're not going to kick us if we miss a day, and you're not going to turn away from us if we are faithless, and yet some of us here, we want to know you better. Lord, remove from our hearts the spirit of an unbelieving generation. We're submitting ourselves. Lord, I know it's not very fancy, but it's really true. Take us now. In Jesus' name, amen. And you're dismissed.